Welcome to Salem Chapel. If this is your first time or whether you call Salem Chapel home, it's great to be here together and worship. And so whether you're in this room or whether you're online, I just want to say welcome. Glad we get to be together. Uh, We're in this series called Look Up. And what we've been doing is walking through the Psalms of Ascent. And so I encourage you to grab your Bibles and, and or your phones and go to Psalm 127. And as you do that, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, if we don't know each other, my name's Aaron. I serve as the executive pastor here. And so thankful last week, um, Will Plitt came and he was uh, taught on Psalm 128. We're actually going to go back this week and pick up um, Psalm 127. And a couple of things that I just want you to be uh, in prayer for. So our lead pastor, Johnny, um, is finishing his sabbatical and time of vacation uh, and and stuff with Lily um, today. And so if you don't know, the elders every year give him not only some vacation time, but just time of sabbatical as he really um, gets away and just spends some time with the Lord about what it looks like for um, the vision for us for this next year. And really, most of that concerns the, the teaching schedule and what it is that the Lord would have us to be in um, as we walk um, you know, through God's Word for this coming year. And so you can be praying for him as well. Pastor Mark got a call on Friday, so our partner church, um, Vertical Church over in High Point, uh, their their uh, pastor is also on sabbatical, and he um, got sick. Um, the guy that was supposed to speak, and so they called Mark on Friday afternoon and said, "Hey, uh, can you pinch hit um, real quick?" And so that's where we're at. So we're kind of stretched. We're kind of helping, but it's it's always a privilege to be able just to do that um, for other th- for other uh, churches as well. So glad that we can serve that way. And so you just be in prayer for for both of those guys and their families today. All right, we're in Psalm 127. As I said last week, Will taught on 128. So here's what I want you to know about 127 and 128. In the Psalms of Ascent, they're wisdom psalms. So think Proverbs. Uh, their design is to give us some practical, godly wisdom. But don't forget that these were sung on the way to Jerusalem as, uh, as, as the folks would make a pilgrimage several times a year. And it was just this constant reminder that what we need to be doing is looking up. Man, I pray that's what God does for us as well. So I'm going to read Psalm 127. I'm going to pray for our time, and then I want to jump in and see what God's Word has for us this morning. Let's read together. God's Word says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. And when he speaks with his enemies, in the gate. Let's pray together, church, and then dive in. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for this series. I pray that, um, and even as we dive into this text this morning, Lord, that yes, we would be a people who take what we learn and that we apply it, but God, more than anything, would it stir our affections for you. May we, uh, may we look at this text and may it remind us of the greatness of our God. May we see you in ways perhaps we have never seen you before, even today. 
Father, I pray that whether it is a, a believer who's in this room who maybe even this morning is struggling or someone who is wrestling with faith or is just new to the faith, whatever that looks like, Father, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts and souls and minds. And so, God, I ask you to be with us this morning as we walk through your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> What's an indication that you've arrived at middle age? 47 next month, by the way. Went to the doctor right before I left on vacation, the eye doctor. I had to get some new glasses. He sat down and he said, uh, hey, so for a man your age, he said, it's time for you to have progressives, which is just a polite way of saying bifocals without the line in. That's all that that really meant. And uh, so he gave me this prescription, and I went back this week when I got back from vacation to pick up these glasses, sat down um, with the lady who fits your glasses and all of that kind of stuff, and uh, she put them on, and she says, now, have you ever tried to, to walk downstairs while wearing progressives? Well, obviously not. It's the first time I've ever had these. And she said, well, let me tell you something. She said, I'm just warning you that what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to look up or you're going to fall down. And I thought, there it is. Like, that's the illustration for really what it is that these Psalms of Ascent are trying to teach us. Because if we look at, and by the way, the reason you have to do that, if you don't know, and if this is not the age and stage of life that you're at, uh, this prescription from about here down is totally different than this one up here. And so when you try to walk downstairs uh, and you look down, it's pretty fuzzy. And it's been a little bit of a getting used to process. And I think the same thing goes when we think about life. So life just kind of can beat us up. Man, there's scratches and there's dents and there's all sorts of things that just happen as we live life. And when we think about what the Psalms of Ascent are designed to do, it's that we might take our eyes from what's immediately in front of us and that we might cast our gaze upon the Lord. That's the purpose. So what do we see in, one, in Psalm 127 when we look up? It's this, that our plans are only accomplished by God's purpose. So that idea is encapsulated in verses one and two. I want you to notice a couple of things. Three times in the first two verses, here's what we're told. It's vain. That word means like it's futile, it's pointless. To build or to watch or to work unless ultimately it's the Lord doing it. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you aren't to build. It doesn't say you aren't to watch. It doesn't say that you aren't to work. We are, as God's people, made in the image of God. We are made to create and cultivate and work. Don't forget Genesis chapter 2. Uh, God assigned man the stewardship of the garden. He called him to work before the fall. And so work in and of itself is, is not wrong. It's not a consequence of the fall. But what this text is doing is that we're reminded that in everything that we look for to create and cultivate and work at and build in our lives, like, it's not because without you, somehow God's purposes and plans won't be accomplished. And I don't know for you, but maybe that creates a tension for you. Maybe there's this tension that when we read a text like this, that there's this wrestling between our responsibilities and God's role. Human responsibility over here and God's sovereignty, I want you to know this, are just two sides of the same coin. Both of these things are true, and both of those, trying to hold those things in tandem, hold those things in tension, are hard to fully comprehend with a finite mind. They're just hard. They're just true. 
God's word says it. So before we left on vacation, I had agreed to also do um, a family wedding. So we drove to Ohio uh, and, and family weddings. I don't get anxious about um, a lot of things as far as, as uh, preaching and doing weddings and funeral unless it's, a, unless it's a family wedding. I told Jen, I said, man, I am so anxious over doing this family wedding, uh, primarily because, well, it's her family. And that poses all sorts of anxieties in my life. And so... <laughs> We went up there, uh, and I was able to do this wedding. And here's an odd thing. If you've ever spoken publicly for a while, this really odd phenomenon happens. You can be preaching, speaking, doing a wedding, and have another conversation in your head at the same time. I'm letting you in on a little secret. It's, it's an odd thing. I'm doing that right now, even as we talk. All right, having a whole... Some of you are going to wonder what he's thinking about. Uh, but you can have this conversation. And so I'm standing there doing, I'm doing their ceremony. I'm looking at this couple and all of the romance and all of the love and all of their vows and all of those kinds of things. And I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea <laughs> what you're about to walk into. Like none. It's going to take some time for you to build and to work at your family and all of the things that are coming. And as I was considering all of that, I thought, man, here is my prayer for that couple. I, I hope that they, I, work, I hope they work tenaciously at what it means to, to build a marriage. I really do. Um, and I also hope that they know that ultimately it's going to require the Lord to do that. So if we th- just think about that funny illustration, where's the theological tension that's in this psalm? Because it exists for every single one of us. Look at what it says. We build a home. The Lord is the builder. We're to protect our family, as we're going to see in here in a minute, but then ultimately God alone is the protector. We're also supposed to provide for our family, but then God alone is the provider. And if you look at what this text says, if you wrestle in theological circles, I think it would be appropriate for you to ask, why does that matter to me? Like, why, why do I even have to consider that? Well, what do most of us spend a great majority of our lives doing? Most of us spend time building a family, working to provide for them, trying to protect them. So I don't care if you're single, or if you have no children, or if you're just an empty nester. Man, what is true is that there are aspects of that that dominate part of your life. And here's a trap I think that we can fall into, especially when life is really hard. Because what happens is we can easily live at one of two extremes. You know what that looks like? Either we live like it all depends on us, or as God's sovereignty is an excuse that means my responsibility doesn't matter. Here's something you don't know, but when we uh, finish um, putting a message together, as pastors, we kind of share what we're going to speak about with one another. We send it in an email. So I sent this email. It went to John, and I said, hey, um, this text is the perfect text for me to quote you. He said, yeah, I think you can. Here's, and I've known Johnny for a long time, and I've heard this statement. If I've heard it once, I've heard it 50 times. So if you're watching, Johnny, shout out to you this morning because here we go. This is true. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our stupidity. Now, I didn't, I didn't actually quote that and put that on the, you know, that, I didn't want to put that up there. But if you want to write that in, God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our stupidity. But here's what you're going to see in this text. Both of these things exist. So what this wisdom psalm is actually teaching us 
What it's actually saying is we have to look up and see a couple of things. As, as a Christ follower, our right responsibilities are never disengaged from God's ultimate authority. And you just gotta hold those things because that is a tension that you've ever had to walk in. You have to hold those things together. The word of God says so. So how do we live with these seemingly paradoxical truths? Aaron's word of the day is really gonna be paradox. How do we live with those? What we do is we believe that both are true. Both of those things are true so that in one hand, what we don't do is step back from the responsibility that we have, but at the same time, we step into the rest that is ultimately the Lord's authority in our life. If that's hard for you, what we're going to try to spend some time this morning is just trying to walk through this paradox. Like, how do I navigate life and how do I live the everyday things that come at me with both of these things being true? And so I'm going to give you some paradoxes that flow right out of these first couple of verses. And here's the first one I just want to share with you. We purposely build our homes while believing the Lord is the builder. Look at verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So that word house in the first, uh, first words, it has a few meanings. It, it was referring to the temple that was going to be built or maybe had been built uh, in Jerusalem previously. It was referring to the physical homes the Israelites were going to live in. But it also referred to their families the things that they were to create and to cultivate in that particular culture. Here's the point. The house represented everything that was closest to their hearts. So when they walked to Jerusalem and when they sung this psalm, it was a reminder to them that was what was most important, what they thought about, what they gave the most attention to. Ultimately, that is built by the Lord. That's good news. That's incredibly good news for us. See, because we spend a lot of time in our lives thinking about building. I don't care if you're the young couple that, uh, that I got to do that wedding for, or if you're at middle age, or perhaps you're even in the later parts of your life. We dream about what life might be like. It's who we are as people. We think about tomorrow. Some of us just wonder, man, I wonder what kind of home that I'm going to live in. Sometimes we spend some time wondering, I wonder where life is going to take us. Maybe you are young and wondering, man, I wonder if children are ever going to be a part of our future. And we just spend a lot of time circling in those areas where we consider what it looks like for us to be building a home. But a lot of times what we don't often consider is the ways that that either everything we'd hoped for are not going to be delivered to us. When disappointments at times are going to come at us like an ocean wave. If you've ever stood in the ocean, at the, at the edge of the water in the Atlantic Ocean, and allowed the constant wave to hit you, it's difficult to stand up. And let's be honest, sometimes if you've lived life long enough, that's exactly what life feels like. 
like the ocean waves that just keep battering you and pushing on you and causing you to, to constantly be in a posture where we're, we're looking down and trying to get our sure footing. And so this psalm is that encouragement. You need to look up. Because as you live life, the unforeseen will happen. The unforeseen will happen. There will be a child for some of us that goes wayward. There will be a spouse that rejects Christ. For some of us, there are moments where all of your friends have conceived everyone but you. There are marriages that crumble. There are sicknesses that come and we're sitting in the doctor's office and we have to listen to the news that we've never wanted to hear. For some of us, time just goes on and dreams die. And it can be so easy to feel like we just need to to give up, just to give in. But what happens is it begs a question in our mind. At least it does for me. And I don't know if you've ever spent some time, like maybe in the quiet recesses of your heart, just pondering this question. When is it what I want, what I've dreamed about, what I've hoped for, what I desire, what, what really seems to be important to me? When, when is it that what I want isn't what I'm going to be able to get? That's when disappointment comes. For some of those questions... That's an, that's an answer you're unlikely to get this side of heaven. Here's what I want you to know, that life as a follower of Christ is a paradox where we both build and believe that the Lord is the builder. Both of those things exist at the same time, church. And here's what that looks like. We build our homes, our lives, our families with intentionality and purpose. It is right for us to be working at building a home. And how do you go about that? Man, if you're single and God has laid in your heart to pursue a relationship, like I encourage you, like pursue a godly relationship. If you're single, I want you to, that's, that's okay too because God has called some to singleness. Some of us need to be about working at cultivating a growing marriage. We do need to be about praying and discipling our children diligently. And, and if you don't have children, but that's your desire, like I encourage you, pursue children if that's what you hope for. But here's what this psalm is reminding of. That for every plan that you purpose, unless the Lord builds it, your best efforts are just vain activity. That's what verse one is trying to teach us. So what does it mean for us to then be builders while believing the Lord is the one who builds. How do you do that, church? How do you walk through life and have to hold both of these things together? If there is one thing that I have spent more time in a pastoral career uh, and just as a follower of Jesus trying to wrestle with, it's these deep theological truths that God is sovereign and I have responsibilities. And sometimes when I'm over here living life and things are not going the way that I want them, that lands on this question of how is that possible if God is in complete control? And if God is in complete control and things don't go the way that I want them, does that mean he's not good? And I'm just trying to be real and transparent with you this morning because I don't know if that's you, but that's been me at multiple times in my life, wrestling through those realities. 
So it just means that when we hold those things together, these paradoxes in both hands, that we trust the Lord is working on our behalf regardless of if what we want is actually what we are getting. What it does, like this psalm, is it becomes the motivation for us to continue to, to press on when we just want to give up and, get in, and give in. Like, man, I don't know, Lord. It, it doesn't seem to go my way. Doesn't seem to go that way for my kids or for my wife. We just have to be reminded out of this text that what belongs to the Lord, he alone will accomplish. He alone will accomplish it. But you know why living with these paradoxes, I think, is so hard? And here's why. At least it is for me. Because we convince ourselves of this. If we just do all the right things, if we just do it the way that we're supposed to, then life will go the way that I want. You ever told yourself that? If I just do this, I'll, I'll have the perfect marriage. Or if I just do that, whatever that is, that my children aren't going to struggle. If I'm just doing exactly what God calls me to do, and, and if I don't make any mistakes, and if I don't veer from it, then my dreams will come true. And we can fend off all the ways that, that life tends to disappoint us. And can I encourage you with something that may be hard to receive? That thinking reduces God in our minds from sovereign Lord to submissive servant. Did you catch that? That thinking reduces, our, reduces God rather in our minds from sovereign Lord to submissive servant. But there's still a question out there. How, how, how do we do these things together? How do we walk and, and, and how do I, like God, how do I build and how do I believe you? And what's really incredible about God's word is that he gives us how this tension is lived out. So when I began and I read verses three through five, I don't know about you, but when I first read this text and was really trying to understand it, I'm like, what does, does verses three through five have to do with the first two verses? And the more that I studied, the more that I peeled it back, the more that I really got into God's word, I saw what was actually happening. It's the illustration to verse one. It's the illustration. What does it look like for us to build and believe that the Lord is the builder? Well, how were children made? I'm assuming I don't have to explain that, right? How were children made? I mean, ideally that comes from a loving relationship that God has joined together. But what do you know is true? Only the spark of life is something that God alone can do. So the illustration that we see is, yes, try. Cultivate that marriage. Work at having children if that's what God has called you to. But ultimately, when your desire is for a child, God alone is the one that puts the spark of life at the moment of conception there. Only him. That's what that is teaching. Do you see what the psalmist is saying there? He's saying, you have a responsibility. There is a way that you actually are active in this, and yet God alone is the one that does it. It requires the Lord to build. The Apostle Paul was trying to explain this exact same phenomena in a different context to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3. 
Because what happened was there was divisions that were occurring in the church. And the divisions surrounded some who were following Paul, some who were following Apollos. And so this is what Paul writes to them. And he says in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, I planted, Paul talked about himself, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Different context, same thing. God alone does it. Does that mean Paul didn't plant? Does it mean Apollos didn't water? No, but God alone is the builder. But you know where that lands on us in the everyday life, in the realities of our struggles? So when we, when we look at this, what I want you to look at this text when you go away from here. And here's what I desire. I want you to look up and I want you to see that first verse and I want it to be the courage for you to keep building and the confidence to keep believing at the same time. Second paradox is this. We fiercely protect our families while trusting the Lord is the protector. Look at the second half of of verse one. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So watchmen were assigned to stay awake all night, to be on the lookout for, like, for danger. Uh, so if there was danger approaching Jerusalem, they were, while everyone else was asleep, what they were supposed to do was like, be aware. Now, some of you know, and I said that my first career before ministry, I was in law enforcement. And I got, I got to tell you something, I hated overnights. Hated overnights. Two to six a.m. was brutal. And it took an incredible amount of fortitude and a whole lot of coffee until one moment, till there was a threat. And man, when the threat came, it is game on. Like there is a heightened sense of alertness. I think that's true for us as well when we think about our families. Because when we sense a threat to you or to your spouse, or to your kids, or to your mom and dad, or to anybody that you love, when, when we sense that threat, what happens is we can become hyper-focused on the danger. And sometimes it is to the physical safety of our families, and that's right. Like, oh man, I, I, I want to keep them safe. But I have found that more times as a parent where I am dealing with the safety of my kids revolves around the emotional and spiritual challenge that they're going to face as they live life in a fallen world. It's where it happens most often. So as parents, here's what we tend to do. We strategize. Okay, how can, I, how, can I, how can I make this safe? We build these defenses. We armor up. We circle the wagons. Everything we can do as we, as we look at, because let's be honest. Let me speak to parents for just a moment. So my kids, my kids are grown, so I, I think I can speak on the fact that this, this is a reality that I've experienced throughout their growing up years. Man, I do not want them to experience the emotional and spiritual turmoil that living in this world sometimes brings. I don't want them to experience that. And I can spend a lot of energy trying to protect them, but here's where that goes wrong. We begin to believe, and we begin to work, and we begin to do, and we begin to protect as if we are the only ones that can keep our family safe. And that's the vain effort that's being described in this verse. Hold the tension. Yes, there are threats. There are threats that require you to be vigilant. Watchmen served a purpose. 
Life in a fallen world means there are physical dangers. There is emotional trauma that seems to come as a wave that will rip and, and just rip us apart and take away our sense of security, the sense of security for our children. Man, when they're abandoned by family, they're abandoned by friends, when, when different things in life have to happen, that emotional trauma is hard. Or sometimes a dream they had doesn't result in reality, and all of a sudden there's heartache. And have you ever been there as a parent where you want to alleviate that heartache, but you realize there's a limited amount of things that you can actually do for it? Some of us just experience the wounds in our soul when sin has this devastating consequence and it just creates chaos in our life. And then here we go, back in this text, where life as a follower of Christ is this paradox where we both, where we both protect our families and trust in the Lord's protection. It's why the encouragement in this psalm is that it's right to protect your family. And I said that when we opened. Like, don't think that it's let go and let God. It's, it's not passivity. I want to be the dad, the husband, who steps into the role of watchman. I want to know where my family's spiritual well-being is being threatened. I want to know as that dad or that husband when life is taking an emotional toll, I want to see the danger. I want to do what I can to defend. We must, and here's what we got to know, we are not their savior. We're not. Originally, I'm from, both Jen and I are from Ohio, and so I told you I went up to do that wedding. Um, it was we were up in Ohio there's one thing, if you're from there originally, there's one thing that, that marks Ohio more than anything else. It rains nonstop. I hated living there. We were up there. Uh, we left. We left um, last weekend. We were driving back. Guess what? It was raining. All the way until we hit the Ohio River. Guess what happened? I was... Here's a funny side to this story. I was actually praying just because I, this drives Jen nuts when I say this. Because she's like, you get grumpy when we cross the Ohio line. I'm like, who doesn't? That's why everyone leaves. I'm thinking, Lord, just because I like to poke the bear, wouldn't it be awesome if like when we crossed the actual bridge on the Ohio River, like it was sunny on the other side in West Virginia and that it was just clouded skies behind me. And you know what the Lord did? He provided that. It was so cool. Now, let me be honest with you. It actually rained. I got that little bit. I, like, I don't know why God gave me that. I got that little bit, but the rest of the way, it pretty much rained. We got into Charleston, West Virginia, and it was raining hard, and we were going, we were, you know, 77 south, and all of a sudden, I was in the left lane. There was standing water. I don't know if they don't drain the roads well there, but we hit some, like, big standing water. I started a hydroplane. All of my defensive driving skills from all of the years in law enforcement that I could muster, and I'm trying to weave us back on the road. Jenny's looking at me like she is terrified. My son is in the back seat. I said in the first service he was probably on YouTube. He said he was actually sleeping, completely oblivious to this whole thing going on. And next thing you know, we pulled right out of it and continued on our way. I'm thinking, oh, Lord. Here's what I know. 
I can have all of the skills of a driver as though I have, you know, run in NASCAR. But unless the Lord is the one that protects. And here's what else I want you to know. Even if he doesn't. Because that could have ended exactly opposite the way that it did. Couldn't have? See, that's what's going on here. That we are trusting whatever it is that falls on us in life. It's the Lord who's our ultimate protector. It's true for you. It's true for your family. It's true for everyone you love. So you're going to live this, this idea of being a protector. You're going to live it out imperfectly. Because at times you're going to attempt to do what only Jesus can do. But here's what I would want you to know that this text teaches us. Every threat that we face is under the watchful eye of the Lord who never sleeps. And that's great news. Can I ask you a question? Are some of you just full of angst this morning? Has life delivered you some things recently that has just created an angst in your soul? You find yourself never resting, just worrying. You know what else that's probably true if that's your reality even this morning? Living that life is exhausting. It's exhausting. So what we mean when we say that this psalm helps us look up, when we spend some time abiding with Jesus, you know what it does? It just reminds us we're not God. We're not him. We do not hold all things together. So when we fail to be these perfect protectors for our family. The Lord does not. And sometimes he's going to protect you just like that car ride in ways that you want. And other times he's going to do some things that this side of eternity are going to seem confusing. It didn't make sense, God. That's, that's not exactly how I thought you were going to do this for my family. But here's what I want you to know. Because you are not God, not one moment is beyond God's watchful eye. Not one moment is beyond his perfect plan. That's true even when you don't like it. And we just got to preach that truth to ourselves. Hold these things as this tension that are true because what it does is it just brings us to this place when we, when we go back to this verse and we say, God, how, how is it that I can take this and apply it to my heart and, and allow it to, to change my life? It means that I, I am going to really with a tenacity fiercely protect my family but I'm also going to just receive the comfort of this psalm by keep trusting that God is my protector. And both of those things are true at the same time. Let me give you this third paradox. We're going to be done. Because not only do we have to build and protect, but we have to provide for our families while acknowledging the Lord is our provider. And we have to provide for our families but acknowledge the Lord is our provider. Verse two says this, it is vain that you rise up early, go and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Just sidebar, these progressives actually really help when you're trying to read print that small, so I'll just say that, that's awesome. <laughs> Even though I can't walk down the stairs, 
Later on the couch, Jen's going to look at me like, your, your, your jokes are so stupid. <laughs> so what do we take away from this verse? Should we just go to, to, go to bed early, just to sleep in every day? Like, don't we wish? No, what we see here is it's actually the practical wisdom of God that fights against our human tendency towards being a workaholic. We've all met them because at times that has been us. Working excessively, and what we do is we just excuse it as necessary to provide. Now, I don't have time to explore it all, but really what you also are going to see if we, if, we, if we had the time in this text, it, it also is this fight against being a sloth or just being lazy about things. Because remember I said, everything is kind of being held in tension in this psalm. But I think more often than not, especially what's true in our culture is this excessive work. And we excuse it because I, I got to provide for my family. I got to provide. But once again, life as a follower of Christ is this paradox where we both provide but acknowledge the Lord's provision at the same time. So don't forget, God is working. God has worked. God created you to work. That's a right thing. So if you're home and you're waiting for a job to fall out of the sky, go to work. That's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There are consequences to failing, failing to do what God designed us to do. And remember what I said when I opened. Genesis chapter 2, where God created us to work, is pre-fall. It's not a result of sin. Is it harder? This side of the fall? Absolutely. It is harder to get up. It is harder to work. The relationships that you're going to experience at work and life, all of those things are harder, but that doesn't make it something that is wrong, and it also doesn't make it something that should consume us. You see, when we are consumed, what it delivers to our heart is what this text calls anxious toil. Anxious toil. How is anxious toil lived out? We never have enough. And I don't mean even just materially. So yes, a lot of times we spend a lot of, of, of moments at work or toiling away so that we can provide ourselves because we, we want the bigger house and the, the, the nicer amenities and all of these things. That's, that's so true. But listen, if we were to actually start to peel back the layers of even a materialistic point of view when we talk about excessive work, what we really are going to see is it's getting down to an issue of the heart. There is something that that is providing to our hearts. And you know what I find it often is as a pastor who meets with people all the time? A sense of purpose, of value, and work, worth. And a lot of times we work because what we want it to provide for us is an identity. Some of us won't even know who we are outside of our vocation, our status, our roles in the family. And listen, don't think that that comes just from the job that you leave the house for every day. That's in the, the mom or the dad who has made the children the center of their relationship or the wife who is defined by who she is as a mom or the, the, you know, the, the, the dad who is defined by, by the, the status and the next promotion and all of the things that he gets. Like all of those things 
really are speaking to an identity issue. So why is living with those paradoxes hard? Provide. God provides. Well, when we excuse our excess work as necessary to provide, here's in reality what happens. Our work has defined us rather than who we are in Christ. It's defined who you are in Christ. We've taken God's design and we fashioned it, listen to me, into our own little God. It's the things that we actually worship. Some of us don't want to hear that. I get that. But the reality is, is there are constantly, because of our sin nature, little idols that we are setting up in the recesses of our heart that we long and look for to give us what only God can provide. And ultimately, it's just a choice to work over worship. You know what becomes evident? When you lose your job and all of a sudden you've lost your purpose. When you enter retirement and you don't know what to do. When children leave the house and you look at your spouse like you don't know who they are. And suddenly what has happened is your heart is exposed to what really is the idol that you've set up in place of God. We realize maybe in God's grace that what we've actually been working to provide is something that only God can produce. Now here is the good news. There's good news in this. Because when we acknowledge that the Lord is the only one to provide, what are we saying? We are saying this, that God has redefined who you are. Look at how the last part of verse 2 ends. For he gives his beloved sleep. This is the anchor verse and anchor word in this text. Because all of the things that are going on are flowing out of who they are, who you are now in Christ, that you are beloved. So when the Lord says that he gives his beloved sleep, it means this, that you in Christ, this beloved one who now has a redefined relationship means your identity is not rooted in, you do, in what you do, no matter how hard you work. Listen to me, church. The cross of Christ, one of the, the things that it has done is it dismantles our sinful desire to think that we can provide what our heart longs for that only God can produce. In the Old Testament... And in and throughout the New Testament, one of the ways that God has redefined his people is through the word beloved. But you know what? Some of us just need to remember that that reality is actually true. Because you've come into this room, you've been in this place, you were overwhelmed by life, and the thought that God loves you is an intellectual thing that you can hold on to, but not a reality that you are living out. God loves you. He loves you enough that he went to the cross. He went to the cross enough to pay for the sin that actually creates in our heart that desire for us to look for other things. He's given you his righteousness. He calls you beloved and you are loved in Christ Jesus. That becomes the motivation for us to be able to live and to hold these paradoxes together and to live them out. 
And yet God in his grace has to keep reminding us of who we actually are. You know how he does it? He puts us to sleep. Have you ever thought about that? God didn't have to make you to sleep. Like you could have stayed awake all the time. But you know why he doesn't do that? Because in your sin, you would never stop. There would be never a time that you would rest and say, I am Christ's, he is mine, I am not God. That, my friends, is grace. So when we look up, what does this do to our hearts? Man, I hope that we just experience the care of the Lord in our souls, acknowledging that he provides for one reason and one reason only, because he loves us and you are beloved. And if you walk out of this room today and you know nothing else and there is nothing else that you've heard Aaron say, I want you to know he loves you enough that he died for you. We're gonna sing this closing song, which is an incredible song, and I'm gonna ask you to do something in a moment. I'm gonna pray for us, but here's what I want you to do. When we stand and we sing these incredible words, I want the word beloved to just be at the forefront of your mind. And when you sing that, I want you to just say, I'm beloved. Randall, I want you to say, I'm beloved. Charles, I'm beloved. Chuck. Cheryl, I can look around this room. I want you to remember who you are in Christ. Bruce, as you worship, do this. Father, thank you for for all that you've done in our hearts. God, that we might remember that the cross has redefined us. Father, that it does motivate us. God, I pray that you would stir our affections for you even this morning. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for this reminder that we can look up when life so easily wants to create opportunities for us to look down and stumble and fall. God, may we walk redefined by our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.